We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. And the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. October is finally here. Is it too early for Christmas decorations? Here's Scott Thompson. Uh, Yes, it is. Too early for Christmas. But I have noticed Halloween decorations going up in and around uh, the hood. So clearly it is not too late for that. Um, Normally uh, after Thanksgiving, but what the heck? It's it was a relatively nice weekend. Why not take advantage of it? All right, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. All right, uh, lots of interesting stuff going on. And I saw this over the weekend. And um, if you listen to the show in any sort of uh, uh, regular uh, uh, regularity, <laughs> that's a good word for our age group. Uh, anyway, um, you, you'll know that uh, I, I'm, I'm very adamant about having a mixed solution for our energy crisis. Uh, it's not uh, a situation of extreme where you uh, drill baby drill on one side or shut off all the taps on the other, uh, which is basically what we've done. And, of course, Europe is screaming for natural gas. Uh, the German chancellor was here. We heard nothing about this in the media, about how he really wanted to buy some uh, uh, Canadian liquid natural gas. But, of course, they talk about some uh, hydrogen plant, which is still under uh, uh, approval and whatever. And if it ever gets built, uh, who knows? Uh, you know, anyway, uh, so today, or sorry, this past weekend, uh, the story breaks that uh, Mexico is building a $5 billion <laughs> liquid natural gas terminal hub to, um, to service Europe. So there's Mexico and the United States all serving, uh, servicing Europe with their clean natural gas, while China continues to build uh, coal plant after coal plant after coal plant after coal plant, while being the pretty much biggest contributor to the world of solar panels. 80-75% of the world's solar panels produced out of China. So uh, we're buying their stuff. They're continuing to pollute and not even using the stuff that they sell to us. So this is a very bizarre circle, and it's about time that people started to realize what is going on. Even if we shut the taps off tomorrow and froze to death, uh, what would we get? 1% contribution to the world because we do less than 20% of, of uh, greenhouse uh, gas emissions, as opposed to supplying the rest of the world, as Europe is begging for, for clean natural gas, of which the, we're the fourth largest producer of. So Mexico's on board. The United States are on board. Canada's sitting there with its thumb up its rear end. Prices are going through the roof, and uh, the government needs money. So, again, it, it's, it's absolutely bizarre to me that we uh, are, are hoarding our natural gas to save the planet when we contribute less than 2%, yet the people who are begging for it on the other part of the world uh, I guess they fall on deaf ears. It's, it's, it's just, you know, as opposed to getting the world off coal, we're going to take our uh, greenhouse gas emissions down another percent. Charges all freeze. 
It, it just makes absolutely no sense at all. And the Liberals say the Conservatives don't have an energy plan. I would suggest the Liberals don't have an energy plan, at least certainly not one that we can hit. All right, on that note, uh, let's talk about uh, Fiona and the cleanup that is going on uh, there and how that continues, power continues to be uh, a big issue as they try to replace uh, uh, infrastructure there. So uh, this is from Canadian Press, uh, Emily uh, Javesky talking about Fiona and where we are now. Officials with Nova Scotia Power and Maritime Electric have said that outages in some areas will persist into this week. In the hard-hit area around Sydney, Nova Scotia, the utility said line crews were going street to street in certain neighbourhoods yesterday to restore power. Most public schools in Prince Edward Island are set to open today after being closed for a week. At least six will remain closed because of significant storm damage. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. All right, and the other big story today is, uh, you may have heard this, and this doesn't mean there's going to be a strike, it just means that a strike vote was taken. And a vast majority of education support workers, these are not the teachers, uh, have voted to go on strike if they cannot get a deal. Here's hoping they can. The government has offered them 1.25% to 2%, uh, depending on how much they make. They want 11% a year uh, over the next three years, which amounts to uh, over 33%. Man, wouldn't that be nice? say uh so that's where they are we'll see where they end up but boy oh boy i'm not sure a lot of us have the patience uh for for getting involved in other uh, industries contract negotiations uh specifically teachers especially when we've got a healthcare industry in the state that it is uh i think we should be paying a little bit more attention to that but what do i know all right uh still to come on Hamilton today, we're going to talk about uh, homecoming. Can you stop it? Is it like trying to stop Christmas? Is it impossible to stop homecoming? Uh, we'll talk about that and what happened in Hamilton over the course of the weekend and the universities. And, and you know, this is an issue right the way across the country. Also, and we've talked about this many times uh, as well, as, you know, we do the big reboot here and, and, and figure out some hybrid version of how we're working, if we can, that sort of thing. What does that mean for office space? Because office space now, uh, at one time... It you know, it's at a premium. You just, you know, people couldn't wait to get downtown. Now, with the shift in work balance and such, uh, people, offices, companies, whatever, are looking for a smaller footprint. But what does that footprint look like? Not necessarily filled with cubicles and everyone getting their own space, much like they can do at home. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, fascinating discussion. All right, we certainly know uh, what happened in the past with uh, homecoming, which um, something that was uh, the the pretty much stopped at the university and then so people have their own I guess or fake homecomings as they say and we certainly knew this was coming and we we heard that uh, that Hamilton and, and Hamilton police uh, were prepared for this uh, knew what was going to happen and, and issued bylaws and such to try to to curb this police in Hamilton responded to multiple unsanctioned homecoming gatherings on Saturday night uh, obviously they had told residents in Westdale and Ainsley Woods neighborhoods to expect a large police presence on Saturday to address a planned large unsanctioned street gathering. Obviously, we know what the issues are here. Streets getting uh, uh, crowded. People, emergency vehicles can't get up and down. Uh, People hanging from trees, cars, you know, that had been overturned in the past and such. And it just 
you know, it, it goes too far. And it's, it's sad because, uh, we all remember this as kids growing up if we went to university and, and, you know, somehow between there and now, it's just, it, it's turned into an issue and it's up to the locals and the police to try to figure it out. Superintendent David Hennick is with us, Hamilton Police Services and with us now. David, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on the air. Appreciate it. Oh, anytime. So first, let's talk about, give us a report. What happened? How was it this year? Um, so for, for this year, honestly, the, the response was better. The tone and uh, the feeling of the crowd, especially during the day, was different. It changed at nighttime. Um, but what we saw during the day, uh, crowds started to gather around 10 o'clock. A um, little bit of communication back and forth on social media. Uh, you could tell that the students were trying to figure out where they wanted to gather. Initially, they were going to go over to Leland, um, but we denied entry to that park over there. Um, some citizens had taken out some permits, actually, and were enjoying that park. I think um, maybe the students were looking for a new place uh, to gather that maybe wasn't uh, under the police scrutiny. Uh, in the end, they returned back to Dalewood Avenue. So really started to gather around 10 o'clock. We probably saw a more significant crowd around noon, um, and and then it kind of gathered throughout the day up to about, I'm guessing, around 6,000 people or so. Uh, 6,000 people or so at its peak um, around 5 or 6 o'clock. How does this year compare to last, Dave? Uh, I would describe this year as much better. Um, the, the tone of the kids, very, very respectful from uh, the majority of the students that we interacted with, a lot of positive engagement um, with the youth. I would like to attribute it to... Uh, uh, to the strong communication and proactive approach taken by all the agencies in this community, uh, like in including uh, police, fire, ambulance, public health, in cooperation with McMaster, pumping out the messages to the students um, about the new bylaw. Um, and we even saw some of that uh, described. There one of the big um, sites on, on social media was called Mothers of Mac, uh, and even they were telling uh, people to come, if they were going to come, not to come with open alcohol and expect the police. And that's what we saw. And and also they were describing telling uh, telling those in the attendance to not uh, or to be respectful towards police. And uh, we saw that as well. So completely different than what we saw last year. Um, a good tone in the kids, and I really uh, believe that's uh, because of the strong uh, partnership that's formed with all the emergency service providers. Uh, the city of Hamilton and McMaster here. Uh, you're basically summing up what I was hoping would come out of this because uh, I'm not convinced there isn't a way to do this and everybody keep reasonably happy. You're not going to please everybody. But you said something I found fascinating, Dave, is that you, you said the tone was way different this year, and you're attributing that to uh, the communication of all the different people uh, that are involved. Is there a way to keep this from going too far? I mean, or is it you just you have to say no and shut it down? You know what? I don't know. Uh, I, I think this. And uh, I know I'm uh, asking you a question that you can't answer, but just no, your professional answer. opinion. Converse, yeah, this conversation is happening all across the province of Ontario, and we saw over the course of the weekend, even in Halifax. Um, so I know yeah. uh, all university uh, communities that have universities um, within them are struggling and asking themselves the same questions. Um, lots of discussion, even amongst our planning group. You know, would it look different? If the universities decided to sanction an event on campus and and own that event, would that would there be enough draw there um, 
to, you know, to see the end to these sort of unsanctioned street parties? And the answer is, I don't know. Um, but I know that, uh, you know, there's different approaches being taken uh, all across the province. Uh, obviously, we learn from each community learns from each other and trying to come up with a better approach to try to address this. Um, in, a, in a perfect world, these events wouldn't occur at all because um, they do. They, they negatively impact the communities. Um, we've heard that loud and clear from the people that call uh, Ainsley Woods and Westdale yeah. home. Um, so that's, that's an issue. But, um, you know, our focus all weekend, or for the 24-hour period anyways, was really about community safety and public safety, and I was happy with the result. I was happy and proud of the efforts of all the the city workers that assisted, all the emergency service partners. Uh, the conduct primarily of the majority of students uh, was very respectful, so we appreciated that. And, uh, you know, just all in all, I'm proud of the work of... Um, and we were also assisted by London Police Service, who came here and helped us out, just for mere capacity standpoint. And... Um, you know, during the day, the event was great. Um, um, it, eventually, at one point in time, around 5.10 in the afternoon, we declared it a public nuisance because the tone changed a little bit, right. and uh, or a lot, rather, enough to enough to qualify it as a public nuisance. Right. And then we began to disperse the crowd from there. And even when we did that, it required very little effort, and everyone, uh, through the engagement of the police, and bylaw officers, everyone was very respectful, and we were able to clear the area very, uh, very shortly. So, that is great to hear. Uh, Superintendent, uh, Superintendent David Hen- uh, David Hennick with us, Hamilton Police Service, uh, talking about how uh, it was kept under control. But again, I, you know, uh, you guys get uh, you know the responsibility of keeping this stuff under control, and I'm not sure it's all your responsibility. Here's hoping that communication continues, and we figure out a way to do all this stuff, and uh, you know, uh, keeping uh, the police service out of it as much as they possibly can. But David, thanks so much for uh, the professionalism and the way you handled things over the weekend. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us on. All right, Superintendent David Hennick with us, Hamilton Police Service. You know, I don't think this is the policing issue. This is a university issue. And as soon as the universities shut everything down and saying, we don't want to be responsible uh, for it, we don't want to take responsibility for it, uh, guess what? You can't stop Christmas. It goes somewhere else. So we can do concerts. Uh, we can do football games. Uh, we can do whatever we can't pull this off it's nuts and it's time that the universities got together put on their big boy and girl pants and tried to figure out a way that they could keep control of the kids the way everyone else does when they go into football stadiums or soccer stadiums or to see the blue jays or hockey or whatever or a concert it doesn't turn into mayhem when you turn around and turn your backs on it and push it off on other people's property, that's exactly what happens. And the universities need to step up and come up with a template that they can hold these events, supervise them, give the kids a place to blow off steam without pushing it off to the rest of the neighborhood. It's time for the universities across the country to step up and realize they got an issue. That's reality. Let's deal with it. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, we've talked quite a bit about this issue, uh, although very different. I mean, there's lots of angles to this. It's a multi-layered onion. But, uh, uh, you know, two and a half years ago, everybody said, go home. 
okay. And uh, some were lucky enough to stay home and figure out a hybrid version. Others had to, on the front lines, continue to keep the world spinning. Uh, and coming out the other end, nobody really knew uh, what the norm was going to be. And I think many thought, well, you know, we can just eat our way out of this. And after four months or so, or a couple of months, we'll go back to normal. Well, after 20, uh, two and a half years, nothing is normal. So uh, what is the new normal? Or what does uh, it look like coming out the other end of all? of all of this uh, when it's still about 30% of the uh, of workforce is doing a hybrid scenario. What does that mean for the office itself, the space uh, that was used to accommodating X number of people, now perhaps accommodating less? And what do, the, do those offices look like? Are they cubicles where everybody's in doing their own thing? Is it more open where people are brainstorming and such? Uh, a lot of redesign is uh, being done to try to get people, entice people, or for the reasons that are needed, bring them back to work. Let's bring in Dave Carter, Executive Director of the Innovation Factory, uh, right near us uh, off the Longwood Road and is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I'm great. How about you guys? So far, so good. So um, where's your head right now? Two and a half years after this, um, you know, we're still seeing people looking for hybrid versions of. How does that change the space at work? Yeah, you know, we were kind of lucky because we built our space we built it as a drop-in center for companies as well as, you know, servicing our own staff. So some of the things that have really worked that, you know, there was no plan. It just, we just lucked out, but you know, a flexibility. So you need spaces that can be multiple things. And, and we were lucky. We had that as a big open space and we had some cubicles and then we also had, and which is so important when you have a big open office, some of these little phone booth kind of rooms where you could literally just go in and take a call and put your laptop up and have some silence because we know that open environment is killer. And, you know, if your neighbor's different tomorrow than it was yesterday, you, you haven't even established some of that protocol. So, you know, we were pretty lucky to have that in our office. And so far that seems to be working out. It's interesting how what you were setting out to do and bring people together and, and create these places where sparks could ignite, um, how ahead of your time you were considering post-pandemic, you know, you used uh, the, the term drop-in center. Is that what the new office has become? Really, when you think about it, it's a place to drop in, uh, re-engage with whoever, brainstorm, and then head back to your cubicle, which now may be home. Yeah, I think it is. You know, we have customers that have come to us. So in the past, you know, the typical customer was, um, you know, once they scaled, they went and leased space. But when they're small, they would just want an office for a couple of people. Now we're seeing the opposite. The bigger companies saying, we need a couple of offices for a few people, and we're going to rotate who those people are. And then we need a few open spaces because we all want to meet on Mondays. And for example, my office is 100% capacity on Mondays because we do all of our, you know, team meetings and that on that day. And then you know, on Tuesday, there's a, a smaller percentage. So, you know, we really lucked out in that what we were trying to accommodate could also demonstrate to some of our companies ways that they could work. So do you see the footprint of, say, a typical headquarters shrinking? Or many thought, well, will it come back? Now many are questioning whether it will. I don't think it will come back. I think not just because, you know, fear of pandemic. I think people realize that, some roles don't have to be in the office. It's up to the manager to be a better manager and figure out ways to deal with that. And some staff have figured out life is a lot easier, right? You have some staff that are caring for older parents or some staff that have, you know, childcare issues or 
horrible commutes. And all of those things can be tempered with a different work environment. And I think we're realizing, especially in this environment now where we're trying, you know, actually getting people is difficult because it's a bit of a, a little bit of a difficulty you know, getting talent. But I think now we're, we're sort of going, maybe the employer can give a bit. Maybe the employer can create a better work environment and someone can actually have a better life working for this company. And it's a competitive advantage. So what will the office of the future, and of course nobody knows because it's continuing to evolve, but what's the difference between post, sorry, pre and post pandemic? Are we going to see um, more, as you said, spaces that you can adapt and use to brainstorm as opposed to those where we can go and cocoon? Yeah, I think um, it's going to be a bit of both, right? So you're going to have these flexible spaces where someone can come in, and shut themselves out and do some phone calls because there's still lots of that. And, and some people can't, can't achieve that in their homes either, right? Just because you're yeah. working remote doesn't mean you have all that. And then there's spaces that are going to have to be different things to, to have different capacities. A good example is, you know, all of our meeting rooms have a big screen, so you could plug a computer in to present. Well, now they've got a big screen and um, a camera and uh, a wireless keyboard because you might actually want to run Zoom on that and have a hybrid <laughs> meeting. And hybrid is, you know, they're, they're the most difficult meetings to have because it's both online and in a room. And so we've invested in, you know, and I think a lot of companies are investing in these better microphones slash, you know, 360 cameras. Like, uh, have you seen these OWL? Uh, they're called the OWL uh, microphone, I guess. But it's a 360. You plop it down in the middle of the table. And as people are speaking, the camera just focuses on who's speaking. Wow. Things like that are going to make <laughs> hybrid meetings actually doable. So what? that's an interesting even avenue or angle of this. So what have you learned in the last two and a half years about Zoom calls and that type of meeting at the Innovation Factory How how and something that you can continue using? What do you learn from that? Yeah, I think we learn more to, to, to be a little more um, collaborative with some of the tools, right? At first, Zoom calls were just people staring and questioning if their microphone was on. And now we see people on our team um, using more interactive whiteboards or, you know, starting the meeting just by sharing what's on their screen. So, you know, we don't need to look at each other's heads. It would certainly be odd to stare at the other person's mm. head the entire meeting. So now, you know, we have someone will start a meeting up and, and once we're through the, you know, the opening stuff, then we'll get right to the, all right, here's what's on my screen. I need you guys to review the budget. And if you, you can open it up on your laptop or you can just see what I've got here. And, you know, people are now, we're all just smarter, right? We zoom into a yeah. spreadsheet automatically. We don't wait for the audience to, you know, ask us to zoom in because they can't read it. And we're better with the controls for, you know, changing, uh, you know, changing which application you're looking at. There's just all this <laughs> protocol we have, like yeah. your mic's not on, or I can't see your screen, or can you see me now? <laughs> all those phrases that which, we use. Which usually get. occupied about the first five or ten minutes of the meeting yeah, exactly, where everybody exactly. got straightened it out, yeah. Uh, what about vacant office space? Um, you know, if this continues, I mean, are you know companies are going to need less of a footprint? They're going from X number of square feet to minus. Um, uh, what happened? Or even residence slash office space? What's on the horizon there? Do you know? You know what? It's funny. I just assumed there'd be all this open vacant office space, and I was talking to someone last week who said, "Nope, because of what's happening with interest rates and all kinds of stuff, mm. there's been no building of new office space." So it's not like it's a buyer's market for office space. Apparently, you know, that footprint of office space has stayed pretty consistent, even though, you know, there was always a demand for new stuff. So uh, 
I had sort of thought it was it was a buyer's market, but I, I was told last week that it is not. Now, if someone hears differently, by all means, let me know. But, uh, yeah, who's, who's to know, really? Advice for both. We only got a few seconds left. Advice for both employer and employee as we venture down this new road. Uh, I think everybody has to sort of give and take a little bit. I think employers need to figure out how to manage remote workers, and remote workers need to know that coming into the office and meeting your coworkers and live collaboration is, is at least part of the job. Dave Carter with us, Executive Director of the Innovation Factory. How work is changing in a post-pandemic world. Dave, thanks so much for the time. Be well. All right, thanks. You guys take care, too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Remember before the pandemic, we would talk quite a bit about minimum wage and then new world, everything's different. And, you know, uh, today the minimum uh, wage increased. However, when you're sitting at like 7% inflation, my goodness, does it even matter anymore? Uh, Ontario's minimum wage increased today, fifteen fifty an hour. How does that compare? Uh, none of it, $16 uh, an hour. That's understandable, I guess. The province of Quebec, um, fourteen twenty-five. New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, Labrador, uh, just under $14 per hour. What does this mean for everyone involved? Let's bring in Moshe Lander, Senior Economics Lecturer, Concordia University, and is with us now. Moshe, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hello. So considering where we are, um, you, you know, post-pandemic and such, uh, and the economy where it is, what does this mean for both the employee and the employer? Well, I mean, it means that both the employee and the employer are looking at about an extra 3% from where they were uh, going into the weekend. So, uh, you know, it's kind of ironic that uh, you were saying pre-pandemic, if, if I recall correctly, all those years ago, uh, <laughs> wasn't wasn't the previous Ontario government looking to increase the minimum wage to $15 and it was cancelled by this government? Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, it, it really is returning us to effectively where we would have been in 2019 in the province. So you know, it's better than nothing, uh, but I'm I'm not entirely sure that this is the solution to cost of living problems for low income Canadians. Uh, obviously, since then we're now dealing with seven percent inflation, so it's 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 a whole new ball game, I guess. Now here's hoping that doesn't stay or grow any any greater than what it is. Uh, that being said, uh, compared to other provinces, still one of the better ones. Does that matter? Uh, simply because you know you're comparing apples to oranges. Yeah, I I don't even know that you're comparing apples to apples if we look in Ontario itself, right? Like if you take somebody who's uh, living in the center of Toronto uh, and compare it to somebody who's living way up in, say, Kenora, the the fifteen fifteen hour is completely a different sort of fifteen fifty. I'm not saying that somebody in northern Ontario is going to be able to make ends meet at fifteen fifteen hour, but I, I don't think that anybody uh, south of the Nickel Belt has any chance of making ends meet on fifteen fifteen hours. So, you know, it, it's really difficult to compare to other provinces. Uh, I, I don't even think it's really possible to compare within the province. Uh, you talk about making ends meet on minimum wage. Many will say minimum wage is was never designed for that. It's designed as a starting position, and then you go up from there depending upon what direction you're going in. Um, what do you say to those that say you know your minimum wage wasn't designed to be living on? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. I, I, I have a philosophical problem from an economic standpoint with minimum wage. It, it, it generally is really just going to push the least productive members of society into unemployment. If you were 
a deal to me as an employer at say uh, $15 an hour, but now I have to give you $15.50, it's possible that I might say, you were a deal at 15 and you're not at 15.50. So you know what, you're gone. So, you know, the, the lowest skilled are really the ones that in theory, minimum wage would protect, but it also makes them the most vulnerable because if they were low skilled on Friday, they're probably not any higher skilled today, but now they cost an extra 50 cents an hour. Multiply that by say 2000 hours a year. Uh, and you're talking about enough money that an employer might very easily say, you can be automated out of existence, or I don't need you anymore, or I'd rather close on Monday than continue to operate with you working that shift. Again, going back to the issue that minimum wage was a designed to be a starting wage, not something that you would continue on for the rest of your life and make a living at, uh, especially with the majority of the people who are on minimum wage are up to 25 years of age, uh, which are basically students who are, you know, starting in the, in, in the workforce in some way, whether it's part time, this, that, or the other, uh, or, or where they're going to school. So is it, is it a little, um, is it a little, con- is a little uh, disingenuous to say that, you know, all of these people are trying to survive, and I'm sure there's a great number of them, when the majority of the people who are, who are using minimum wage are those that are just starting out. It's possible, but, you know, how many people are pegging their own wage to minimum wage, right? So let's say that you work in a workplace where you're twice as productive as somebody who earns minimum wage because they now got an extra 50 cents. You could very easily be arguing today that you want an extra dollar an hour, right? The gap between that person who's using it as a starting point uh, and you who might be a career professional at this point might be saying, wait, because that gap is narrowing, I need that gap maintained in order to justify my own productivity or my own motivation for showing up or not being a part of the great resignation uh, that allegedly is going on out there. So, you know, it, it's the type of thing that, yeah, you might not be getting minimum wage, but if you're pegging to it, that increase could be driving a whole bunch of wages higher today in, in response. I think you could say that for any entry position in any industry, though you could not. I mean, that's just the way it is. What, what's your uh, solution here, Moshe? Is it a case of increasing the minimum wage? What do we need to be doing here? I, I think it's 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 a much broader issue, and it takes time. And I think that's why governments really don't want to do anything about it, because the benefits won't be there for them to take credit for. But we need to find a way to boost people's productivity. The greatest predictor of what you're going to get paid is how much value you contribute to a firm. If you are highly productive, if you're highly educated, if you're highly skilled, then you're going to have no problems asking for a high wage. And minimum wage then is going to be an irrelevance. The problem is when you're lacking those skills, when you're lacking that education, when you're lacking that productivity, that's the type of thing that minimum wage then gets you caught up in. And so, you know, what governments need to be looking right now is where are jobs going to be in the next five to 10 years? And rather than trying to continue to pretend that life can continue the way it did pre-pandemic, let's start figuring out how we're going to start allocating workers in a more efficient way and making sure that they're going to be graduating universities, community college, high school, or wherever it is that they're coming out of with the skills that are going to make them relevant and productive to any potential employer. That, that, totally negates then the need for this minimum wage discussion that we have every six months. Hmm. Moshe Lander with us, senior lecturer, our senior lecturer, economics, Concordia University. Fascinating discussion, Moshe. Thanks for the time. Be well. Anytime, Scott. News over the weekend that Mexico is about to build a $5 billion liquid natural gas hub to supply Germany and the rest of Europe. The United States uh, obviously on board already with all of that. Uh, and here's a fascinating uh, headline out of uh, the National po- uh, Post. Well done, everyone. We've let China become the real energy superpower. Beijing keeps generating and burning coal while also controlling the global market 
for solar panels. Here's a, a bit of it. Western governments have repeatedly ignored the warnings that assaults on their fossil fuel industries would hobble their economics, our economies rather, and make them more dependent on foreign dictatorships while doing little to curb global warming because developing countries would not follow suit. Those warnings proving to be true as China in particular explo- exploits the West's greenhouse obsession. For years, China has been busy building coal plants at home and abroad while Western countries have shuttered coal generators and spent vast fortunes on renewables. And by the way, 75% of the market for uh, solar panels is controlled by China. Uh, So they're making the most mess and profiting from sending us the results, the solar panels, the things to keep the country clean, the, the world clean, while they don't seem to care. Uh, let's bring in Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thank you. Is, is the world starting to get this message, Gordon? I mean, Germany was like a world leader in renewables. Then all of a sudden they're canceling their nukes and they're depending on Russia. I mean, is the world realizing what's going on here? Well, my impression, I'm not sure the world does. I think those who study energy or China carefully or energy carefully will have a sense of what's happening. Uh, I think that their strategy has been for decades now is to dominate all of the energy technologies to a certain extent, at least. Uh, Those where they are uh, net importers, which would include uh, oil and gas, uh, although they produce both in significant quantities, but also uh, the alternative energy sources such as solar and and uh, wind, nuclear, uh, they're strong in all of those. And they, as a manufacturing hub of the world, uh, they this is an extraordinary advantage to them. I, I think we're to shift away from the, the reliance on China, not just for manufacturing goods, but from reliance on their production of wind turbines and solar uh, will be very difficult. Not impossible, but difficult. Uh, 75%, they control 75% of the market. All we hear about is this is investing in green jobs. Clearly, the green jobs are in China. They are, to an extraordinary extent. The Chinese overbuilt their solar sector. Too many manufacturers manufacturing too many panels. It's one of the reasons why the if you buy anything solar, not only in Canada, it almost certainly comes from China, but also it's pretty cheap when you think about it. Um, you know, the the... Retail stores are full of this stuff. Uh, they have overproduced in many cases. But to take them on, i.e. to be to fabricate that stuff um, at that kind of volume, with that kind of advantage of scale, difficult for any country. Uh, how how do we justify all of this? How do we say we're being clean when, you know, you hear so much about us buying dirty energy from other players? Now uh, we've got the dirtiest player supplying us with green technology. Well, it's, uh, there's a conundrum there, all right. I would argue that India is a, a major and growing source of pollutants. But China has, uh, I can recall, it wasn't that long ago, maybe 10 years ago, 15, when China and U.S. vied for which was the largest greenhouse gas contributor. Now it's China far and away. And the U.S. has, through a variety of mechanisms, has reduced its profile considerably. China's Greenhouse gas production continues to increase. And it's frustrating if you're a small country, relatively small country, except in size like Canada, because we go through extraordinary measures to reduce our carbon footprint. 
but it's overcome by rapidly growing greenhouse gas production in China, India, and a few other places. Uh, small country, we produce less than 2% of the, the world's global uh, emissions. E- even if we shut everything down and got her down to one, um, it's not going to make a hill of beans difference. When you've got other parts of the world burning much dirtier energies, is now the case not the business case for natural gas or anything like this uh, more evident that, you know, we need to start contributing to the rest of the world instead of bragging about goals we can't meet or we don't meet? Well, from my personal perspective, not everyone agree with me, natural gas is a great transitional fuel. Yeah. We're going to be dependent on fossil fuels for some time to come, but uh, gas is much cleaner. Uh, we have lots of it. Uh, we sell it relatively cheaply because we don't have We've missed several opportunities to export LNG at high prices. Um, one could still do so now, especially with Europe. But we don't have the facilities. We don't have the terminals. We don't have an industry oriented towards our coasts for overseas markets. Um, it's been, a, I think, a failure of imagination and a, especially bad timing. So Germany comes calling looking for Canadian liquid natural gas. Instead, they get a proposal of a maybe hydrogen plant. And, you know, we we have to invest in all of these things, but I don't think that's what they were looking for. Uh, Then are involved in in Mexico. We now hear making plans to build a $5 billion liquid natural gas hub to do the same thing that the United States is doing. That's supply Europe. Are we missing the boat here? Well, we've missed several boats. There was a period a few years ago when there was an earlier spike in prices in Asia, in China, especially in Japan and and Korea. Uh, We weren't ready for that. Uh, Those who took advantage of that were principally Australia, uh, Indonesia, and the Middle East, uh, Qatar in particular. And now we have a Russia-generated second price spike in Europe. But of course, it has a a flowover effect globally because uh, LNG is a, is a globally tra- um, sold product. So I'd argue we've missed one boat and we're about to miss the second. Maybe when we finally got our facilities ready, there'll be a third, perhaps. Many say, well, it's still too late. Uh, you know, this will all die down in five years. The demand won't be there. Will the demand continue for a while? Is this worth investing in? I think that liquid natural gas will ha- has a lifetime. Um, maybe not 50 years. Um, but a decade or two or three, perhaps, uh, the world's a long way away. And again, parts of the world, such as India in particular, but all other industrializing countries are increasing their consumption of both oil, uh, liquid petroleum, but also uh, coal. Uh, I think there's going to be a role for LNG for some time to come. And of course, that gas locked in the ground um, will eventually, at some point, not have the value it now commands. There will be new technologies in the in fullness yep. of time and later in the century. So um, go to market as soon as you can or wait and find that it may have no value. Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta. Always fascinating, Gordon. Thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, Europe facing an energy crisis. We certainly know about that. And then uh, Nord Stream pipelines obviously shut off and then uh, explosions making them pretty much disabled. Uh, and not too long ago, the German Chancellor coming to Canada looking for Canadian natural liquid natural gas. And 
um, you know, gets a, uh, a hydrogen, uh, a, a future hydrogen plant, which uh, may or may not come online. Uh, yes, we do need to invest in renewables and in, in whatever the future is, but we also have to be aware of what's going on in the world with um Europe needing energy and the rest of the world for that matter. Mexico stepping up like the U.S. and Qatar have and have announced that uh, Mexico will open a liquid natural gas export plant, a hub, $5 billion, 4 to $5 billion to uh, help and take advantage of the situation, obviously, that is happening in the world. Let's bring in, let's bring in Atif Kaburzi, Professor Emeritus Economics, McMaster University, President of Ecometric Research Limited, and former Undersecretary of the United Nations, and with us now. Atif, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. I hope you're well, too. And- have we just, have we, <laughs> we've just lost Atif. He, we were all well, and then we weren't so well. Uh, obviously, Will's going to try to call him back. So, uh, again, uh, this to me is um, is just not reading the room, is not reading the earth, is not understanding what is happening here. We have uh, the Chinese Communist Party who is uh, continuing to produce coal, continuing to produce uh, pollution, and all well controlling 75% of the solar panel market, which we are purchasing and trying to offset what they are polluting. Uh, rather than uh, getting our less than 2% down to less than 1%, would we not be best to help the rest of the world uh, get off the dirty coal and onto cleaner forms of energy such as natural gas? Canada, of course, is in the process of shutting all of this down. As we heard our last guest, Gordon Holden, there's been about four projects that they've missed the boat on uh, and just keep kicking the can down the line until there's no need for it. Well, unfortunately, there is going to be uh, a need for natural gas long after uh, the Prime Minister and his uh, nice socks have left the planet. And all you have to do is look outside and, and what are you heating your home with? And the majority of Canadians are, and if they're not, they wish they could, and they can't because they don't have the lines in. So to say there isn't a business case for this, you have to wonder where Mexico is coming from. Atif Kaburzi, Professor Emeritus Economics, McMaster University, is with us again. Atif, thanks for uh, taking the time. Hope you're well. I am well, and thank you for calling me. All right, we're going to try this again, Atif. So uh, Germany comes to Canada looking for liquid natural gas, uh, ends up with the promises of a hydrogen plant, which is great, but certainly not solving uh, the issues on the uh, certainly the immediate or midterm uh, future. Uh, now we hear that Mexico spending between 4 and $5 billion to create its own natural gas hub uh, to export, and not only for their own means, but to export to, to Europe as well. Is Canada missing the boat? here should we be doing more uh, to to uh, to spread our cleaner energy to other parts of the world that are still using coal well you see Canada is uh, quite concerned that they will put this investment a huge investment that we're talking about uh, around five billion dollars and uh, the future is not uh, certain about uh, fossil fuel uh, there is uh, quite a bit of concern that we might really be facing an issue of stranded assets where oil and natural gas are not compatible with a sustainable planet. And they don't want to commit this kind of money. And the Canadians are having to choose. Would they really supply the Europeans because they have a very major problem now, the Germans particularly with Nord Stream 1 and 2 off and the 
crisis coming from Russia, cutting the supplies, or should they really go to a more certain uh, demand that is coming from uh, South Korea? So there is a, a bit of an issue here, stranded assets and continuous demand in the future to warrant an investment of $5 billion. With all due respect to Teep, you know, we've been hearing these arguments that they're, oh, there's no, it's like the, the, the Prime Minister said this earlier, there isn't a business case for liquid natural gas, Canadian li- uh, liquid natural gas. That's because we've kind of shut it all down and not made it attractive for people to invest or develop uh, this. How can we keep just assuming that in five years from now, we won't need the natural gas, or 10 years from now, we won't need the natural gas, considering this is how most of us are heating our homes now anyway. Is it not uh, short-sighted to think that we're still going to need this um, 10, 20, even 30 years from now? Uh, you see, there is no certainty about the future, but there is one thing that seems to be clear now, that fossil fuels are no longer the choice of energy because they are not compatible with uh, making sure we have resilient uh, communities and climate change. We, we know all that. We know all that argument, Atif. We know what fossil fuels do. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not doing one extreme to the other. What I'm trying to do is find a solution until we get there. And many have said the natural gas is a great way to get places like uh, China and Indian whatever off of coal, which they keep increasing. So we can talk like this all they, we want, but there's players of the world that are ignoring this while we continue to batten down the hatches. So isn't it? wouldn't it make more sense to try to get the world off coal rather than waiting for a sol- solar panel that, that replaces it and heats our homes whenever that okay. is going to happen? Yeah, look, I mean, there is no question about it. If you put it in this... Uh, framework that uh, the people, particularly those in uh, Korea, are dying from the use of coal and coal dust. But the issue here is to what extent Canada can invest and uh, put all these resources with no guarantee that the future would have uh, a strong demand to justify to pay for all this investment. But there is really one thing here. The future is for renewable energy. Yes. And the question here is to what extent can we now, in the short run, uh, come to the uh, table and bring the needed gas for Europe or for uh, Southeast Asia, but at the time that we can be assured that whatever investment we make will pay off. What does it say when Germany, who for decades have been world leaders in renewable energy, whether it's solar panels, whether it's wind turbines, now have shut down nuclear and are, you know, depending on Russia's natural gas. I mean, if anybody was going to figure this out, wasn't it going to be them? And it just appears, Atif, that we're not there yet, and we've got to use this to transition, which is not going to happen next week. No, it's not. And you know that even with our $5 billion, how fast did this investment come on stream, and how long would it really last as the need in Europe might weigh down. What if the Europeans really are able to get uh, oil and gas from the Mediterranean as they are now trying? What I guess, Atif, my answer to that would be if you asked us five years ago, they said we wouldn't need it. We still, if they asked five years before that, 
same answer, and even five years before that. So how can we pretend the next five years are any different? No, I mean, nobody can predict the future, but yeah. one is definitely certain that there is a concerted effort, and, and, and justifiably so, yeah. to use renewable uh, energy, to use green energy, to use clean energy, and that any investment today in fossil fuel is probably unwarranted. People of Europe might disagree with that, Atif. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, I, I find it fascinating when people think that, you know, places like China or India or, you know, whoever are, are, are going to all of a sudden stop burning coal. And whatever their output is with coal, they're going to get that from solar panels and wind turbines. Like, how are you going to go from that speed to that speed? There's a transition period. And a lot of that is involving natural gas, which is what we're seeing Europe go through. So it amazes me that people think that there's just no, well, we, you know, like the professor kept saying, we got to get off fossil fuels. Well, of course we do. Of course we do. Our, our next guest will confirm that where, where he is. But how do you get there? What's the transition? And the transition is from one fuel to a cleaner fuel. It's not from burning coal to shutting everything off. That's it. Get on your bicycle. We're going to freeze. And, you know, there's no business case for any of this. What's That transition period is going to be like 25 years. And I'm a guy that's been listening to this for decades. You know, if we had invested in the natural gas stuff five years ago, we could be using it now. If we invested in it 10 years ago, we could be farther along. So now we're punting it five years farther down the road. I don't get it. Two major storms that have taken the attention of all of us over the last little while. Uh, obviously, uh, Hurricane Fiona, and uh, which hitting, you know, obviously hit the East Coast, and Hurricane Ian, which uh, walloped into the Gulf Coast of Florida, skipping across the panhandle, going back out the other side, picking up steam, and then heading into the Carolinas. Let's bring in uh, Jim Crizula, CBS correspondent. He is with us now. Jim, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Good to be with you. By the way, this thing just doesn't want to go away as you and I speak. The storm, as you mentioned, made a second U.S. landfall in the Carolinas, ended up in Virginia, kind of fell apart. And then over the weekend, Scott, it moved out back over the open Atlantic and has regenerated into what's going to become a pretty good nor'easter. In fact, causing problems again right now. Storm surge, heavy rain, very strong winds, uh, really from the outer banks of North Carolina, northern North Carolina, all the way up to Long Island, New York. It's affecting air traffic on the east coast of the U.S. as well. So, again, this thing just doesn't want to go away. How often, Jim, do we see a storm that does that? Because, again, if you follow the path of this, it come into the Gulf side of Florida, which is rare onto its own, and then crosses the peninsula, gets back into water, and then, as you said, up towards the Carolinas and then back out again. Does that happen often? Because normally I thought once these things get onto land, they slowly uh, disintegrate. I mean, it occasionally will happen, Scott. I, I just And, again, I've, I've covered dozens of these storms, and... I guess I'd say maybe 30% of the time you see this happening where it will come in one place and then uh, go back out uh, again. Let's say it, it hits somewhere along the, 
United States Gulf Coast and then moves east and north and and head you know eventually heads back out over the the Atlantic and uh, you know picks up steam again as it gets the warm waters of the of the Atlantic, especially the Gulf Stream, which is about thirty or forty miles or so off of the east coast of the United States. But uh, again, you know, not all uncommon for this to happen. But um, it, it was interesting to me. I think one of the things with this storm is once it it went across the Florida Peninsula, then came back out over the ocean up near Jacksonville in far northeastern Florida. Uh, then again, because the water's so very warm off the east coast of the Gulf Coast of the United States, especially for this time of the year, it re-strengthened back into a hurricane. So what is it like in the Carolinas right now? What is it like in that part of uh, of the U.S.? What are you expecting in the next 24 hours? Well, the weather's gotten pretty good here. Um, there was a significant storm surge and tidal flooding, as they call it, right along some of the beaches of the of the Carolinas, your many listeners probably are, are aware of Myrtle Beach, yep. Charleston, of course, historic Charleston. Uh, and this storm, when it made a second landfall, uh, came in right between those two cities. There's a coastal, mm. charming coastal community called Georgetown, South Carolina, and that's where this storm came in. And then then went up into North Carolina and Virginia, and as I say, now is back regenerating into a nor'easter off the the east coast, the mid Atlantic coast of the U.S. So what are they expecting that uh, are they expecting that to create havoc in the northern United northeastern United States as well? Well yeah again you know nothing certainly like they've seen in Florida obviously yeah. but again as I say even some air travel along the US east coast is being affected by this today. So uh, again just a long long term recovery if there will ever be one for some people in Florida because of this storm I just saw something Lee County Florida, which includes the city of Fort Myers. And again, a lot of Canadians are very familiar with yep. Fort Myers and Sanibel Island, Sarasota, Bradenton. But in Lee County, authorities saying this afternoon, Scott, it may be a good month, if not longer, for them to fully restore electricity. Because again, the power grid was just basically wiped out by Ian. Mm. Unbelievable images we're seeing. Uh, Jim Krizula with a CBS News correspondent in Greensboro, North Carolina. The storm that just won't quit with Hurricane Ian continuing uh, to batter in the eastern United States. Jim, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck. Same to you, Scott. Good to be with you. Take care. Stay well, stay safe, and healthy. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, we heard earlier today, Ontario's education support staff, this is not the teachers, this is the support staff, uh, have given their union a mandate of 96% uh, to take strike action if negotiations with the province uh, break off. It doesn't necessarily mean there is going to be one, uh, but if it does, that's where they are. And hopefully, uh, well, on Thursday, uh, OSBCU will return to the bargaining table. Able to talk more about all of this, Laura Walton is with us, president of QPOSBCU, and on the line now. Laura, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you today? So far, so good, Laura. Uh, 96% vote in favor of strike action. As I said, that doesn't necessarily mean a vote. What does it mean? Or, sorry, a strike. What does it mean? Well, I think what it means for us is a really clear message coming from over 45 thousand members out of our 55,000 membership that participated in the vote, sending a clear message that they support the demands that are being asked for at the bargaining table, and they're committing to fight to get those. 
And uh, what what is what is the negotiation here? What are you looking for? What are the issues? So there are two key issues that are at play right now. Uh, first of all, the one that is really important is the service level in our schools. Uh, you hear a lot about, oh, well, kids are back to school. Everything is normal. That is so far from the truth. There is not adequate support in place. There is not enough staffing in place, uh, much due to the amount of funding that has been cut out of our school boards. Um, and we can't also recruit or retain staff. School boards are really struggling recruiting and retaining staff as they are you know, heading into this year because nobody wants to come and do the work. And that brings me to my second point. It's because of the low wages. On average, we make $39,000 a year, and the majority of us are working multiple jobs in order to make ends meet. Uh, um, obviously, shortage of labor, shortage of people in every line of work. We've certainly seen that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what exactly are you asking for? We're hearing that the government, uh, the Ontario government has offered uh, 1.25% to 2%, depending upon if you're over or under 40 grand, uh, and that you're asking for uh, just over 11% a year. Uh, are those accurate so numbers? Well, what we're asking for is $3.25 per hour for each year of the collective agreement. And that's for every worker, regardless of what they make right now. And that is because when we have percentage increases happening, it actually furthers the disparity between low-income earners and high-income earners. And what happens is that low-income earners like ourselves get further and further behind. And so we want a $3.25 flat rate for each worker. So uh, you're choosing to use a flat rate as opposed to percentage, but that's really just optics, is it not, Laura? Uh, Not really optics, because when you're thinking about it, uh, you know, 11.7% means something so different for somebody who is making $24,000 than it does somebody making $45,000. It's a significant difference. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why with low income, you see things going up by flat rates. So, for instance, minimum wage, just went up two days ago uh, during the pandemic. The flat rate that was given to workers was a flat rate, not a percentage. And that's because the majority of those folks are low wage, and you need to be able to make that impact to bring the wages up. What sort of occupations are we talking about that are making the, the lower levels that you're speaking? And what would it start at, 39000 or twenty nine? did you say? Uh, well, 39000 is the average, but many make below it. 39,000. So for instance, many EAs make below 39,000. Clerical folks make below 39,000. Um, there are, you know, we do have some trades folks and the trades folks. <laughs> oh man. If there's one interview I wanted to keep going, it was this one. Uh, you know, at the, if you can get her back on, great. If you can get her back on, you I'm got her, right uh, here. Laura, you're here. I thought we lost you. Oh no. Okay, I great. So, can, so continue saying. Interference by some I don't, other people. So all right, continue talking and say what you're saying. Trades people. Yeah, so in trades people, we have trades people in Hamilton, for instance, working for the Hamilton Public Board. They make over 39000 but they make far less than their counterparts in other sectors. And so we're losing those folks as well. And those folks maintain our public buildings. They maintain our schools. And they do so at a far more economic rate than contracting out the work. Uh, again, uh, you know, with 11, uh, intra- or sorry, with the inflation rate sitting at 7%, uh, is this not a big ask for 11% a year over three years? That's 33%. Well, you also have to keep in mind, too, that for the last 10 years, We've either had our wages frozen or capped um, in seven out of the 10 years by government legislation. 
So we are already behind before we started. I think everybody else would say that they are too, Laura. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Um, when I, we took a look at the, you know, just the data, education workers lag behind private sector, they lag behind the broader Ontario public sector, and they lag behind municipal workers. And that's because we are the only sector that had our wages frozen during Bill 115, which was ruled um, unconstitutional. And we've already done our time under Bill 124. As a matter of fact, while we have been making about 11% increases, the private sector has gone up by 19 Sorry, by how much? 19 Again, you know, I think a lot of people would question some of these numbers you're throwing around, Laura. These are um, all but, numbers, but let me let me ask numbers you that, that are publicly available. I, I, I know, I know. Numbers that are publicly available. Yeah. By the Ministry of Labor, because they keep they keep track of every contract that's negotiated, whether it's public sector or private sector. Um, again, Laura, getting back to the issue of you know you you can you can call it three dollars or four dollars or whatever. People will know what they get. And do you think you're going to have a hard time selling to Ontario voters that you're looking for 11% a year over three years? That's that's a lot, even though, you know, considering inflation is 7%. Well, I think, you know, there's actually two pieces. I do think that people do recognize that the work that we do and that was so vital during the pandemic is being underpaid. If it wasn't underpaid, then school boards such as Hamilton Wentworth and Hamilton Wentworth Catholic would not have recruitment and retention issues. That's number one. Second of all, what this government has offered at a time where you yourself mentioned 7% inflation is only 1.25 or 2%. This is coming after three years of 1%. So it is completely disrespectful. Um, And, you know, this is also a government that has cut money. As a matter of fact, the money that we would need for our wage increase that could be covered by the money that they're giving out in checks at $90 a pop to parents that we know is not going to be able to adequately support the students' learning needs. Um, what do you say to those, Laura, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, um, who, who, like myself, have seen uh, labor disruptions with teachers or support workers uh, for 40 years of, of when I was in high school and would like to see that attention instead of every couple of years having to battle with this, would, write, would, would rather see that attention paid to health care systems. What do you, what do you, what are your, what's your well, reaction? I, I would say that they're not mutually exclusive. Um, I can tell you that education workers have never, I have never in my 20-year career been on strike. Uh, my father was a principal. Uh, Laura, you can, sell, you can sell those all you want, but every September we all always get threatened of it. So whether you say you're on strike well, or you're not, we're, we're always, we, we've been, you know, and we all get dragged through it. So, you know, I think the... Unto- to avoid I know, I know, I know. We gotta, we're, we're out of time. We're out of time. Notice <laughs> yeah. in June, and the government didn't come to the table. This would be easily solved by actually negotiating with us when we served notice over 120 days ago. They chose not to. Laura Walton with us, president of QP and OSBCU. Laura, good luck with all this moving forward. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. uh, Over the course of this uh, global pandemic, we have talked at length about the Canadian healthcare system and the holes that need to be filled, the weak links. Uh, and uh, many of us who uh, are very proud and, and brag about our Canadian healthcare system were surprised to see the flaws and the weaknesses over a global pandemic. Um, lots of attention paid towards 
coming together with the provinces and trying to figure out a template to fix all this, although many will say health care is a provincial issue. So is dental care and daycare, for that matter. And obviously dental care and a national dental care plan has become a massive part of the conversation, especially with the Liberals and NDP joining power, this very much a plank in the NDP's platform. So uh, how do we wade through all of this and what is best for the kids and the citizens and those of us that actually use these systems. Let's bring in Dr. Janet Lynn Tompkins, president of the Canadian Dental Association, and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks very much. I'm speaking to you from Algonquin Park. Oh, what's it like up there right now? It's absolutely gorgeous. It's cool, but the colors are beautiful. Yeah, I can imagine that. Oh, my. Um, So your thoughts on uh, the chatter and what's been going on and the progress in regard to a, uh, a national daycare, uh, sorry, a national dental care plan. Um, is this what's best? Is this what's needed to make sure everybody gets to the dentist's office? Well, first of all, you know, I'd like to say that at the Canadian Dental Association, we, we know that oral health is an essential part of overall health. So we are certainly pleased to see all the interest that's going on in terms of dental care. Um, with the, uh, the program that's just been announced, uh, you know, we've been, we've been advocating for the federal government to put more money towards uh, increasing access to dental care for years. So we are pleased to see that, uh, you know, that something is underway. So uh, this, this program that has come out now is, is very much an interim program, as we understand it. It's, uh, it's going to be in place until at least the end of June 2024, and it's aimed very much at the 0 to 12 age group. And, uh, you know, that's a really great thing, because we know that if you can get kids into the dentist early, and the dentist can do an examination and, uh, and assess the child's uh, risk of developing future dental disease, we can actually you know, we can prevent a lot of problems from happening. So to be able to get the kids in to see the dentist, you know, even within six months of the eruption of the first tooth, it's, it's a great opportunity to uh, talk to the parents, talk to the family, uh, provide some education around good healthcare practices, good oral healthcare practices. And we can really change a child's life by getting them on the right road to good oral health. I think most Canadians, all Canadians, would probably uh, agree with that. Um, the issue is, is this the best way to do it? I think I remember talking to somebody at the Canadian Dental Association not too long ago, and they said uh, these plans, these uh, programs are in place at the provincial level. The issue is there is an adequate funding to make sure that they are implemented and everybody who needs to get them gets them. Is this the best way to make sure everybody gets into the dentist office? Well, certainly across the country in every province, you see uh, some programs uh, and they are funded to varying degrees. So some are fairly well designed and fairly well funded. There's no perfect system in place right now that we could kind of launch from. Uh, But in some provinces, and Ontario is one of them, that has one of the lowest reimbursement rates in terms of their children's programs. So that that is an issue that we hope to see remedied. Whether the funding... In the future program, and and as I said before, this is an interim program, and what we have basically right now 
is the equivalent of a health spending account. So eligible parents will go on or, or caregivers or, uh, you know, people that are responsible for the children would go on the CRA website and follow through a series of uh, applications where they have to attest that they don't have any kind of private dental coverage, uh, that the uh, the dental coverage or the dental treatment that's proposed is going to, you know, create an out-of-pocket situation, and that they will keep all of their receipts so that they could be subject to audit later by the CRA. So what we have right now is the equivalent of a health spending account. It's not really a dental insurance plan. And and I don't think anybody right now sees that as the long-term solution to uh, to having a, a dental program. Because by the end of 2023, we're looking at the government rolling out a program that will, will cover kids up to the age of 18, persons with disabilities, and seniors. So there's certainly a lot of work that needs to be done, and we are pleased to be part of that process. We have had uh, many meetings, actually, with, with Health Canada and with uh, Minister Duclo, he's been very open to input from all stakeholders, the provinces, the territories, uh, other oral health groups, um, the Canadian Dental Association, definitely. And, uh, and we're pleased that, you know, the minister is taking the time to consider all of the, all of the implications uh, of, a, of a new program before something that, that we would consider more permanent to be put in place. So, uh, so this is just interim. What happens after that? What is the purpose of this? Um, are we going to be in the same place a year from now, or is this just to gather information and learn? Um, what does this all mean? Those are all very good questions, and I think very good points. There's certainly going to be a learning process through this through this interim program. Uh, I think that uh, that long term, I, th- I think what they have in mind is something more like what you would see when you go to the dentist. You have a dental care plan that covers you uh, for certain things, and that that would be that would be the sort of thing that would be rolled out. But these are all this is all going to be part of the discussion with the uh, with the federal government and the federal government. I know is going to be talking to the provinces and the territories as well. So I think, uh, you know, we have to keep the lines of dialogue open and, uh, and be, you know, keep our eyes on the bigger picture, which is getting access to dental care for all Canadians. I think that's a worthy goal. Uh, many Canadians concerned, uh, extremely concerned, uh, number one, one of the number one issues with the Canadian health care system. Again, another provincial uh, uh, situation. Can you see the same thing happening with a national dental care plan that has happened to uh, the health care plan, where it all sounds great at the beginning and the feds are going to pay so much, and then as time goes by, the provinces are just unable to afford it, which is what we happen with the health care system now. Are you worried that this is built on sort of the same template? Well, I think that's the reason why we, you know, that we're happy to see that the minister is taking the time to consider that. Obviously, they're going to be looking at what is happening in the wider health care picture. So, uh, you know, the minister is taking the time to, to gather all the information that's needed uh, because it is a complex issue. Um, you know, there's going to be a multi-phased approach to, uh, and we're going to look forward to collaborating further with, with the government, with the minister Duclo, and certainly providing feedback uh, as we go along with, with this program in particular. And, uh, and you know, we have information, uh, certainly at the Canadian Dental Association, we have long studied what we call the elements of essential dental care, what would be, what would be ideal in terms of uh, providing a, a good program that is, that is flexible, that, that addresses the needs of the person throughout their lifetime, 
takes into account their, their overall health situation. So, for instance, you know, persons with diabetes, for instance, would need to see the dentist more often or the dental hygienist for scaling uh, of teeth so that they get good periodontal health. We know that those two things are linked. So there's a lot of discussion going on right now, and, uh, and we're just happy to be part of that dialogue and providing expert input. Dr. Janet Lynn Tompkins with us, president of the Canadian Dental Association, talking about the National Dental Care Program moving forward. Thank you so much, doctor, for the time. Be well. Thank you. Uh, may I add one thing? Yeah, go ahead. So I'd like to, uh, to say hello to my, my uh, colleague and past CDA president, who Dr. Larry Levin, dentist in Hamilton, who has lived and worked and taken care of Hamiltonians for, the, I think, over 50 years now. So thanks very much, Larry. There you go, a shout-out. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I just wish our fancy prime minister would spend half the energy, half the energy on our failing Canadian health care system as he is on building a dental care system off the same template. Because remember when Medicare started, everybody, oh, we're going to pay half, and oh, it's going to be great, it was great, it's great, and then they slowly kept backing away, backing away. And when you ask Justin Trudeau about health care, he just gives you that look, you know, like he's filled his pants. Oh, yeah, working on that. Oh, it's a provincial issue. What? Health care is a provincial issue. Yes, funded uh, funded 22% by the feds. Well, dental care and daycare are also provincial issues. But they're sticking their nose in that because that goes a long way to getting you reelected as opposed to fixing an ailing healthcare system. So rather than building a template based on the healthcare system for dental care, why don't we fix healthcare and then come up with a better plan for dental care? So again, we're heading down the same road and going to do the same thing. But when you talk about healthcare, the Prime Minister kind of looks the other way as provincial. But he doesn't feel the same way about dental care. I just wish he would use that same enthusiasm to fix the health care system as he does with all these other things. Anyone? Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, I hope you're doing well. I am, although a word of advice, um, don't eat a giant piece of beef jerky right before you come on the radio ever. Just just a, oh, something to, to remember for the future. I remember uh, leaving a radio station. I need station. the dental care now. I've got so many pieces of meat stuck in my That's teeth. A, he need, the man needs a good pick. Who's got a pick? Water I, or it's true. wood? Dental it floss, doesn't matter. Where's the dental floss monger? I remember uh, leaving a radio station once, and uh, I left for the afternoon guy a box of Timbits. So, uh, you know, I had finished a couple. Here, you take the rest of it. So I get in the car, and I'm driving home, and I'm listening to him on the radio. And he starts to read the weather, and then he starts just choking and coughing like a banshee. <laughs> you, can hear, you can hear him constantly turning the mic and off on and off and he's like he just he you know how when it gets stuck there and you're just barking so much your eyes are watering and i'm listening to this guy i'm thinking what the hell and then he said uh, thompson left timbits and one went down the right uh, the wrong way and there you go uh-huh. so never leave never leave timbits for the staff you never know what's going to happen yeah or any kind of food i left a hot dog one night for bill kelly in the studio and uh, he was not <laughs> impressed the next morning when he came in no not in the garbage 
no, no, it was sitting on on the desk in front of him. But it nice. was not really edible at that point. But it sure smelled up the, the next studio. the next day. He <laughs> finds your hot dog. Nice. Yeah. I would have picked it up and put it in your locker. Save it for later. All right. Uh, you had so a great call. To topic. Yes, yeah, back to your topic, know. though. Did you want to talk about that one? Okay, go ahead. Well, only, only you know what? The only point I would say on it is uh, you've, you've, you've hinted at the issue, is that the, the difference between dental care and health care is that Jugmeet Singh and the NDP have promised to prop you up if you put in the dental care. Yeah. So that is the reason why they care about the dental care, because it keeps them in power. If this was not an NDP requirement for that will help you stay in power. I'm quite sure we wouldn't be talking about that right now. So why doesn't the NDP say, uh, you know, uh, obviously we need uh, dental care for everybody, but more importantly, we've just come through a global pandemic. Can we please fix the health care system? Why? But it's the same answer. Jugmeet Singh wants something shiny and new he can hang his hat on as opposed to a Jugmeet Singh who's fixed. Scott, yeah, every Jugmeet Singh. Look, bring it right down to the municipal level. Right. We, we have I, I argued a number of years ago that there should be a moratorium on any new builds of anything because we have a three point two billion dollar infrastructure deficit. So rather than build another new senior center or another new this or another new that, which is great because the politician in that ward and the mayor get to put a plaque up with their name yeah. on it and cut the ribbon and have their picture taken. And nobody does that when you fix a bridge. Uh, rather <laughs> than doing that, let's look after the stuff we have rather than doing something shiny new that is now going to in years add to the infrastructure deficit because it's going to need repairs but you're right you don't get to have a picture in the paper or get a bronze plaque for fixing a cracked road we don't put plaques on all the sidewalks when it says councillor so-and-so fix this pothole thanks maybe we should do that that you know, might inspire uh, them to do it <laughs> That's right. Hey, and you know how you like, for example, you can, uh, you know, your family, your organization can book a piece of road and, and, or buy a piece of road, you put flowers on it or a piece of a thing and you get, you know, in, in a park and put flowers or a bench there. Maybe we could do the same thing. The Wilson family filled that giant pothole on Main Street. And what they about, a little sign. you know, when you, when you, um, what do you call it? When you brand a cow, you have that thing yes, where you put the initials. Yes. So every pothole now, you can buy a yes. brand and it'll be the you ST your from Scott thing. Thompson. Just and you drive over the ST pothole. Hey, thanks, <laughs> Scott Thompson. That was great. We appreciate that. You get a family crest on every pothole. Man, we should be at City Hall. All right, more of this great politics and chatter on the Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock quick news. Reminder, also, quick yes. reminder, this is we, uh, Monday number three of Mayoral Mondays. We had Andrea Horvath. We've had Keenan Loomis tonight. Bob Bertina joins us to talk for a few segments on uh, his platform. So uh, if you are at all, and I hope you are, interested, not just you, Scott, the listeners, in the election and who to vote for, please stick around uh, for that for the first hour at least. It is getting pretty interesting. Uh, we'll leave it at that. We'll chat more on that next time. Scott Radley coming up moments from now. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to Diana and Dave in the newsroom, uh, the two wills for producing. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. 
to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say all parties involved in the education contracts that recently expired should have rolled up their sleeves on July 1st and kept negotiations going until all the contracts were settled. Our students had two terrible years of online learning lockdowns and shutdowns. Ontario students so need an academic year that is totally free of any interruptions. 